passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like to ask you if you could get out your Bibles. Also, take out your sermon outline. If you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. And by the way, take Getting out a sermon outline and filling a sermon outline is something we regularly do here at Crossman, so I'd encourage you to do that. For the last two weeks, we've been working through the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and this morning we're going to be finishing up those verses. Uh, These opening verses of the fourth chapter are really Paul's challenge to young Timothy of what it will mean to be a faithful pastor all the way to the end of his life. And this is a very appropriate challenge for Timothy to receive from Paul. Paul was writing this from the Mamertine prison. Shortly after this, Nero will take Paul's head off. The baton of leadership will pass from the older seasoned Paul to young Timothy. And it will be a challenge for Timothy. It will be a tough challenge to be faithful all the way to the end of his life. Because Timothy is heading into what is a very difficult season for the church. Prior to this, it was mainly the Jews who were the antagonists of Christians. But in this time, it's soon going to become Roman society and Roman government that will begin hating Christians, torturing Christians, and killing Christians. Interestingly, for the accusation that Christians are atheists because they will only worship Jesus and not the emperor as God. Now, for Timothy... It'll be a very difficult days that'll lie in front of him. Challenging, challenging to be faithful all the way to the end. Now this morning, we're only going to look at one verse, which is verse 5, which will be the last of this section in our three-part series here. But since we only have one verse to look at, I'd like to do something a little different in the front end. And instead of asking, answering the question of what does it mean to be a faithful pastor all the way to the end, why don't we begin by answering the question, how does one even know if God wants them to be a pastor? How do we know if God is calling somebody into ministry? Well, for Paul, it was pretty easy. He was down the Damascus Road, and Jesus himself showed up and called him into ministry. Timothy, it wasn't too hard either. He was hand-selected by Paul and then trained by Paul. But what about you and me? How does somebody today know if God is calling them to be a pastor or a missionary? How do we know how we should follow that calling? So that's what I'd like to do. And if you can see in the top of your outlines, the first question I'd like to answer is, how do I know if God is calling me to be a pastor? Before I became a lead pastor, I was actually a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 10 years, six of those full-time. And in my youth ministry, we talked a lot with the kids about the question of how do we know if God is calling you to be a pastor or a missionary or into some kind of form of ministry? And I'm thankful to tell you that during the six years of full-time ministry, two of those kids went on to become lead pastors One's a pastor in Evangelical Free Church. Another's a pastor in a conservative Baptist church. A number of the kids in my youth group went on to become missionaries, at least part-time, because we talked about this question. 
How does someone discern and know if God is calling them into the ministry? And I was thinking this week, that's a question that I haven't really talked much about with you guys. And so that's why we're going to take a few minutes to talk about that here at the front end of this message. This is such an important issue. Remember that the church is only one generation away from extinction. That is why we are about, in our motto, reaching people with Jesus. But we're not just about reaching people with Jesus. We are about raising up the next generation of pastors and teachers for Jesus. Because old fossils like me, uh, we don't last forever. We won't be around. Somebody's going to have to take my place. And so we want to prepare for that. Incidentally, my thoughts in this are not really unique to me. Just to be honest, I'm going to be borrowing from something called Spurgeon's Lectures to His Students. Spurgeon wrote in the late 1800s, and his wisdom is great. So this little section here is just coming from Spurgeon. Let me just begin with this. Why God does call some people into pastoral ministry. The truth is he calls all of us into some form of ministry. Point A here is all Christians have a general call to ministry. And we can see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are, here, we are his workmanship, were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of us are called to good works. All of us are not called to cause trouble in this world but we are called to love and encourage other people in this world. Other people should be blessed to be around Christians. Other, Christians should be, other people should be encouraged to be around Christians. We are called to good works, all of us. And God promises to give us lots of opportunity to do those good works. They may be as simple as helping a neighbor with his lawn, they may be helping to coach a city league baseball team. They may be helping to lead a, a YMCA class. They may be simply calling or texting or encouraging people who are going through a really hard time in their life. We're called to do all those kind of good works. Every single one of us. And God promises to give us many opportunities to do those things. But we're not just called to good works. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The other thing we're called to do is we are called to proclaim in this world the excellencies of Jesus. We have a responsibility to speak about others, about the greatness of Jesus. How thankful we are to Jesus. What Jesus has done for us. It's the old satisfied customer. When you're really excited about a product, you can't help but talk about a product. And if we're really excited about Jesus, guess what? We shouldn't be able to help but talk to other people about Jesus. This past week, Cindy and I had a, and 
sometime in the evening, we were just flipping through the channels and going to watch a television program, and it came up with some advertisement about a program that was later on in the week. It was a program about depression and overcoming depression. Now, I recognize that depression is a real thing. And obviously, there is biological depression, and sometimes you need medication for depression. So I recognize all that, but I still want to say, one of the best ways to get over depression is simply a healthy dose of understanding who you and I are in Jesus Christ. Because when you understand your identity in Jesus, how can you be depressed? I mean, we find that Jesus died for us. You and I deserve hell, but he died to save us. We can't save ourselves. You find that, that Jesus loves us more than any human being in this world possibly could. Jesus took our sin away from us, separated as far as the east is from the west. Jesus makes us into a completely new person, getting rid of our old nature. No being in the entire universe, according to Scripture, is more blessed, honored, and loved than you and I are through Jesus Christ. That's right now, and all of eternity is just getting better. This life is as bad as it gets because of Jesus. Folks, we are so blessed. How could we ever be depressed? Isn't that true? Healthy doth is who we are in Jesus. How can we be depressed? Now, our job is to tell other people about Jesus, that we are satisfied customers. Well, while it's true that all of us have that ministry of doing good works and proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, God does call some of us to a different ministry. God gives some Christians, a specific call to pastoral ministry. God calls some people to the public preaching, the public proclamation, the public leadership of the church. And by the way, God has always done those things. This is not a new thing. Remember Moses? Called by God, chosen by God to lead his people. Remember Aaron? chosen by God to be the priest of God's people. Remember Jeremiah the prophet? What do we read? Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See God calling, God choosing. By the way, we find the same thing with Ezekiel. God called him and chose him. We find the same thing, as I said earlier, with Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. God called him. God chose him. So while God calls all of us to the general ministry of good works and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, he calls some people to a specific ministry of preaching and teaching the word and leading God's people. Paul, by the way, talks about the fact that he was called. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and he appointed me, there it is, to his service. Or again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. For this I was 
appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, how does one know if God is calling them and appointing them? As I said earlier, it was a little easier for Paul when Jesus showed up on the Damascus Road. It seemed like it was a little easier for some of the Old Testament prophets because God spoke to them directly. But what about you and me today? How do we know God's calling? And as I said earlier, I'm leaning heavily on Spurgeon, who wrote in the 1800s, but I think he said it best. So this is, these are his points. Here we go. One knows they are called to pastoral ministry because they are internally compelled to preach the word. Here's how he said it in his lectures to his students. An irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling others what God has done to our own souls. Or as Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Spurgeon says a man finds himself compelled by God to preach. Paul says he was compelled by God to preach. Compelled means you are driven by the Holy Spirit, so you feel like you cannot do anything else and be satisfied with what you are doing in your life other than preaching and teaching the gospel and the word of God. Incidentally, compulsion is different from ambition. Ambition means I want to make my business the best. I want to sell the most. Ambition wells up inside of you. Compulsion comes from outside of you. It means you're drawn, you're pulled. But that motivation is coming into you, not growing out of you. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is just simply to share with you how I felt called to ministry. If you've been around Crosswinds for a while, you'll probably know this story. But if you're new, guess what? You get to hear this story. It all started for me when I was in high school. In high school, we had a, a good high school youth group. And a number of our kids in high school traveled with Teen Missions International on a summer mission trip. And we would go to Merritt Island, Florida before, for two weeks of boot camp before we went overseas. And I was going overseas to Switzerland to a building project where we were going to uh, learn how to just, we are going to build different compounds for missionaries. So in the boot camp, I learned how to make cement. I learned how to lay bricks. And by the way, this is proof. Go ahead and show this. That's me when I wore a smaller pair of pants. And learning how to lay bricks in high school. Well, one of the speakers that we heard, he challenged us. He said, you guys are kids. You can give the rest of your life to be used for Christ's kingdom. And he said, if you feel God calling you to use your life for the rest, the rest of your life for Christ's kingdom, come forward. And I came forward. I had no idea what I would do. But I just knew that God was calling me to do something significant with my life for him. I wanted to give my whole life to him. I thought I would be a, a missionary pilot and I could fly, you know, those missionary planes into jungles. That was a great idea until I went up on a plane and discovered I get airsick. 
in which case that all ended. Went to college, uh, did computer science, still didn't know what I would do. Graduated, was doing well, but I couldn't find a job for some reason in the 1990s. It was just, I just could not get a job. All summer long, looking for a computer job. Finally, I hit up on the idea, I don't know where it came from, saying maybe I could go to seminary for one semester to learn a little bit more about my faith. Ended up going to Westminster Seminary, and I didn't know where the money was going to come from, but I had a grandmother who said, I will pay for your tuition to go to one semester of seminary. Very gracious on her part. Here I am, summer Greek, learning my Greek, and I went down to see one of my old friends uh, down in college. He had become a car dealer, and he was selling cars. He went to a dealer auction. So here I am in the back of a dealer auction as they're wrapping the, the hose and doing auction stuff, trying to learn Greek doesn't go too well. Guy comes up to me and he says, I see you're learning Greek. Yeah, I'm learning it. He said, did you know if you could read the Bible in Greek, you'd know that Jesus really isn't God? And I went, really? And then he handed me this book, and I left it in my office. I forgot to bring it up here. It's called Why You Shouldn't Believe in the Trinity, Why You Shouldn't Believe that Jesus is God. And I read it, and at first it seemed to make a lot of sense to me. And I went back to my professors at seminary, and I said, I didn't know Jesus wasn't God. And they started challenging me and talking to me. And one professor said, I want you to take all of January term to study that pamphlet. And I want you to write for me a response paper to that pamphlet. That was a watershed moment. Because the more I studied that pamphlet, the more I realized it was filled with lies, deception, misquoting the Bible, The logic was completely false. I discovered it was written by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I came away fired up saying, this is a lie. It is sending people to hell. And I'm going to give the rest of my lives to preaching the truth. Now, you look back on that. Well, but you see God's hand in all that? Can't get a job for some reason. All of a sudden, I find myself with the ability to go to one semester of seminary. I have a grandmother who feels that she wants to pay for that. And then we have a guy who is a Jehovah's Witness who tries to convert me while I'm at a school which has a great library so I could actually read, research, and learn about these things. And the deal was there was such compulsion in my heart. I couldn't do anything else. Now, not that I didn't have the ability to do anything else, but I couldn't do anything else and be at peace about it. In seminary, they said it this way. Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. Only enter the ministry if you can't help it. Spurgeon writes about it this way in his lectures to his students. If any student in this room can be, could be content to be a newspaper editor, or a grocer, or a farmer, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a senator, or a king in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom, the, in whom dwells the Spirit of God in its fullness. For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit, but that for which is in most so is in most soul pants. We must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. The word of God must be unto us as a fire in our bones. Otherwise, if we undertake the ministry, we shall be unhappy in it, shall be unable to bear the self-denial incident to it, 
and shall be of little service to those among whom we minister. So you see, he talks about this inner compulsion that God places in your heart, that you cannot do anything else in peace other than preach the word of God no matter what happens. And I am reading that and saying, that's exactly what God did to me. Second thing you can know about God's calling you into the ministry. One knows they are called to pastoral ministry if God is giving them the innate gifts necessary for the job. Spurgeon says this, we must consider the innate giftedness of the pastor and teacher. In other words, if God has called somebody to be a pastor, the circumstances on the outside will complement their call on the inside. In other words, someone will have the innate giftedness to study, the desire to have good wisdom, to good have sound judgment, to have leadership skills and communication skills if God is calling them to be a pastor. God does not call people to the pastorate without giving them the innate gifts necessary for the pastorate. Think of it this way. A little earlier, Andy up was up here, and he's leading worship. Now, I can tell you that I was not called to lead worship. It's rather obvious. I do not have the innate gifts necessary to lead worship. If you hear me sing, your response will be, shoot the animal and put it out of its misery. Really, it's like, I do not have those gifts. Try as hard as I might, I will not be able to do what Andy does. God didn't build me that way, so I shouldn't lean into that occupation. And the same thing is true for a pastor. If God is calling you to the pastorate, he will give you the innate gifts and ability to be a pastor, whether that is intellectual or whether that is physical to do that. I like, I'm going to paraphrase Spurgeon, not quote him, just to keep it a little shorter. He says it this way. Does not nature itself teach you that if God called an animal to fly, would he not give it wings? If God has called a man to preaching and teaching, will not God furnish him with the gifts necessary to accomplish that task? Now, I'll have some fun with you. Hopefully, nobody gets offended, but just have some laughs with it. Uh, Spurgeon was writing in the 1800s. So you don't have amplification equipment. And he talks about the problem of the small-chested man. Now, what does that mean? If you're a pastor in the 1800s and you have no amplification equipment and you have to talk to large crowds, Spurgeon says, if you cannot make it to the end of the sentence without stopping for breath, maybe God is not calling you to be a pastorate. If you cannot speak loud enough to be heard by people, maybe God is not calling you to be a pastor because he has not given you the innate gifts necessary. You are a small-chested man, which I found funny all week long. But I understand his point. Second thing. One knows they are called to pastoral ministry because their church affirms the calling. And the judgment of the church upon a person and the affirmation of a person to ministry by the church is very, very important. Some may have a natural internal compulsion to ministry and to be a pastor. 
and they may have the innate gifts necessary to be a pastor. But if a church doesn't want to send them and affirm them in that calling, they should not pursue being a pastor. Why is this affirmation of the church necessary? If you remember in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about the qualifications of being an elder. I'm going to read for you some of those qualifications. They're being above reproach, being a one-woman man, being hospitable, managing his household well, having a good reputation with outsiders. Those are all areas of a person's life that the church looks around and says, is this guy faithful to his wife? Is this guy hospitable? And in the judgment of the church, if these things are true, then you can affirm that person into the position of eldering. But those things don't just need to be true of elders. They need to be true of pastors as well. So the church should be able to affirm those same qualities in a man's life before they affirm him into pastoral ministry. And if there is something that seems to be falling short in that person's life, it is the job of the church leaders to talk to that person gently and help them correct those areas and find blind spots in their lives that they're not aware of so they don't become ineffective in pastoral ministry. How do we do this in the free church? How do we do this in Crosswinds? In our denomination, we have something called ordination. Ordination in, involves research, it involves writing papers, it involves going before a council of your peers where they grill you on what you believe and they press you, and it, it's hard. The academic part of ordination could probably be done in only three months. It's not that hard. But it's a process that typically takes about three years. Why does it take so long? Because a very serious part of that process is the candidate for ordination should be watched in ministry by the leaders of the church. And then they have to be affirmed for ordination by the leaders of the church. And if there's anything in their life that seems to be out of line, or a blind spot that they're not aware of that's hampering their ministry, it's the leaders of the church's responsibility to help make them aware of that. So we have three pieces so far the inner compulsion that the Holy Spirit gives a person they can do nothing else, the innate gifts necessary to be able to do that, and third, we have the affirmation of the church to do that. One fourth and final thing. One knows they are called to pastoral ministry when a church receives a man and becomes effective under that man. I'm going to quote Spurgeon again in his lectures to his students. If your call from the Lord be a real one, you will not long be silent. As surely as the man wants his hour, the hour wants its man. If you are called to pastoral ministry, God will open a church, which is a place for you to serve in ministry. Realize that all pastors are not the same. While there are some base qualifications, God gives pastors different gifts and different skills and abilities. But all churches are not the same either. And different churches need different kind of pastors. Some people may be a great pastor at a large mega inner city church. 
But then there's all these other churches that are small, rural, country churches. And they need different kinds of pastors with different kinds of gifts. So if God is the one who's sovereign over all this, and God is raising up a pastor, not only will he give them compulsion, not only will he give them innate gifts, not only will he give them the affirmation of the church body they come from, but he'll open up a place of ministry where they can go to and become effective. Because he's not just preparing the pastor, but he is preparing the church for them. Because the church is designed, the pastor is designed to be a gift to the church. The pastor is there to serve the church, not the other way around. The church doesn't serve the pastor, the pastor serves the church. Well, that was a long introduction. But hopefully it was a good introduction. Because my hope is that one day God will raise up in Crossman's some young men to be pastors in the future generation. And we may raise up young men and young women to be missionaries and that you would know that God is calling you. So with that said, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God. I'm going to read the first five verses and then we'll do our quick study on the last verse as we finish up this section. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. That ends the reading. You can be seated. As you remember, in these five verses, there are eight qualifications of what it means to be a faithful pastor, someone who is faithful all the way to the end. In the first four verses, there were four qualifications that we've already studied in the previous two weeks of this series. Now we're in the fifth and final verse where we find four more qualifications that are short and very pointed, and I'll simply explain them to you. What is a faithful pastor? He finishes with this. A faithful pastor remains calm in the midst of a storm. Or as he says it here, as for you, always be sober-minded. What does that mean? Timothy, don't be flaky. Make sure you're level-headed. Be sober-minded. It means to be rock-solid and steady under pressure. You have to be calm. You have to be collected. You have to be the kind of pastor that makes the right decisions under pressure, not emotional decisions under pressure. Incidentally, Paul also uses this same term to describe elders for positions of leadership. Calm under pressure. 
Maybe the way you can think about this is if you uh, look at a, f a football quarterback in the Super Bowl. You've probably seen those quarterbacks. The game is on the line. They have to score if they're going to win. It's do it all now or you lose it all now. And there are some seasoned quarterbacks that you can see them on television. They are calm, they are cool, they are collected under that pressure. They are not falling apart under that pressure. In fact, under that pressure, they are performing at their finest. That is what Paul is saying to Timothy. You need to be that kind of pastor that under pressure, you don't freak out, you don't fall apart. Another way to think about this is if you've ever flown. If you've ever flown and you find yourself flying into a storm, you know what the pilot does. He gets on the intercom system, and is he freaking out when he's talking to you? He knows his job is to convey cool and calmness. And he says, uh, folks, we're just having a little bit of turbulence right now. Just ask you if you could return to your seat and buckle up your seat belts. It will be okay for your connecting flights. In the meantime, the plane's like all over the place. Like, you know. That's what he's being. He's being sober-minded, cool, calm, collected under pressure. And Paul says to Timothy, you're going to be under a lot of stress in these upcoming years. To be a faithful pastor, don't freak out under pressure. You need to know God's got it all under control. God's got a plan. We may not know what God's doing. It may be like Joseph when he was sold into Egypt. God, what are you doing? Why am I being sold as a slave? But then years later, he looks back on it and says, you sold me there to save my very brothers and to save many lives. I get it now, but I didn't get it then. The same thing is true for us. We can be cool and calm and collected under pressure because we know God has a good plan and he has a big plan and he's got it all under control. The next piece about a faithful pastor, he says a faithful pastor is willing to endure suffering. Endure suffering. A faithful pastor has a proper understanding of suffering and the ministry. In other words, expect to suffer, Timothy. Accept, accept suffering and don't freak out under suffering. In fact, if you look in the, th one of the big themes in 2 Timothy is, Timothy, make sure you expect and handle suffering well. Just expect it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy, if you are a pastor, suffering is part of your job description. They didn't write it on the paper. It should have been there. Expect to suffer. You will suffer. And knowing that you will suffer as a pastor will help you when you do suffer. Because if you don't know it's coming, when you get discouraged, when you get overwhelmed, you'll feel like quitting. But when you do know it's coming, and you get discouraged, and you get overwhelmed, you won't quit. Because you know this is normal. I like the way Paul says it. We're going to be studying this verse in the next two weeks. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I thought about that. 
No one ever told me in seminary that being a pastor is called, I have fought the good fight. I thought when you went into ministry, it was all going to be fun. Paul says it's a fight. And if you've been around the church, any church, not just Crosswinds Church, any church for length of time, is there conflict around the church? Is there disagreements around the church? Do people get upset and irritated around the church? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of difficulty and fighting. And a lot of times, you know, you can't do anything to avoid it. I remember one of the first times I got in serious pastoral trouble. I was a youth pastor. We, uh, at the time, I was serving a church that was on Lake Michigan. And for a youth group activity, we decided we'd all go down to the sand dunes. And we'd jump off the sand dunes. Can't be anything wrong with that. I think I'm pretty good at this point. Uh, at the time, I'm driving a small truck. Not the truck I have now. I needed the truck I have now. But I was driving one of those little tiny trucks. It looks like a toy truck with one seat in it. And I'm the pastor, trying to be a good pastor, make sure everybody gets a ride home. I think I'm fine. And one kid comes back, and all of a sudden I start counting and realize I'm one seat short. The sun has gone down, and it's dark, and this is pre-cell phone days. You can't call anybody. I think, oh, it's two miles to the church. It's a like, relatively unused road. What I'm going to do is have the one kid sit in the back of the truck, and we'll just drive home. So I'm driving home. I got my flashers on. I got 25 miles an hour. I'm thinking I'm being a good pastor. Well, I arrived home at the back of the church, his parents were there, and they completely went bananas. He wasn't in the car with a seatbelt. And I'm thinking, there are large portions of our country that go to work every day in the back of a pickup truck. This can't be that bad. Well, I was in serious trouble. I'm like, well, what do I do? Just leave him? I mean, you know, what am I supposed to do? But, you know, that's just part of it. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's a way to win. You're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. That's just part of the ministry. Now, suffering it involves for the pastor physical suffering, relational suffering. People stab you in the back. It involves demonic warfare. Definitely, I can tell you, I've seen that in my lives. Financial suffering at times. Incredible amounts of discouragement. Doubt you go through. You go through parenting challenges. Kids don't always do things that you would expect. Hurtful criticism you face. Sometimes you face false accusations. And Paul says, guess what? Just get used to it. Endure suffering, Timothy. It's part of the job. And if you think you've got it bad, if you ever want to be encouraged, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul talks about the suffering he, he faced. Three times, 40 lashes, minus one. Beaten with rods, multiple times. One time stoned and left for dead. You think you're having a bad day? Read that and you're really encouraged. Trust me. That's just normal. Now, the question becomes, Timothy, did you suffer well? How did you handle the suffering that would be part of your ministry? There's a small verse tucked in the very end of the book of Hebrews. Let me read it to you. The writer of Hebrews says this, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. 
this word released, while we don't know what it specifically refers to, typically it refers to being released from prison. Hebrews was written shortly after 2 Timothy was written. Apparently, Timothy received this letter about suffering. He read this letter, must have got in some kind of trouble with the government, for being an atheist probably, ended up arrested, put in jail, and now he was out of jail. And here we apparently see that Timothy didn't wilt under that pressure. Timothy was faithful under that pressure, even if it meant he ended up in jail because of it. Let me just flip over the back side here. Oh, did I miss a point? I think I did. Hold on. Too many pages. Oh, here we go. A faithful pastor has the heart of an evangelist. I should mention this. Uh, Timothy's role was to be the pastor and teacher of the church of Ephesus, but he was also to lead the charge of evangelism in the church of Ephesus. He wasn't just to be teaching those who are saved, but presenting the gospel to those who need to be saved. He was to model having a heart for the lost, not just caring about people inside the church, but caring about people outside the church. By the way, this is a reminder to me. My job is not just to feed you the sheep, but my job is to model evangelism and to have a heart for the lost so that you may follow me. And some people wonder, like, you know, why do you go to the why? Why did you join CrossFit? Well, it's not because I like the pain. Quite honestly, it's because I can, that way I can meet more people who need to know Jesus so I can share Jesus, so I can model for you the idea of making time in my life to reach people with Jesus. Because that's our motto as a church. If I don't model, model that, why would you model that? And flip on the back here, the last one. A faithful pastor continues pastoring all the way to the end. This little phrase, he says, you need to fulfill your ministry. Fulfill, it means usually what you would do with the jar, you fill it all the way to the top. The idea is there is no air space in that jar. No wasted space in that jar. Timothy, when it comes to your job as a pastor, do all you can for as long as you can and leave nothing left undone. Paul writes about this. For I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Now in our country, we have sort of a strange way of thinking about things. Oftentimes, we think you go to around the age of 60 and then you retire. And in some people's mind, retirement means we disengage from life and we disengage from serving others. And all of a sudden, we're at the stage now, everybody serves me. Paul would say to Timothy, no, you don't retire, Timothy. You fulfill your ministry. You do as much as you can, as long as you can. Now, does that mean that nobody can retire? (laughs) I didn't say that. Here's what retirement is. It's downshifting. 
it's not going into neutral and coasting. It's downshifting. You may not do what you once did, but you continue to serve Christ in other ways. Honestly, my pastoral heroes right now are all retired ministers. Ministers who retired from ministry, but one of them, he now serves as an interim pastor, helping churches that are going through pastoral changes, taking years of wisdom and experience, helping them land on their feet. That's retiring well. Another guy, what he does is he calls young pastors who are just starting in their 20s, and he calls them and he mentors them because they don't know what they're doing when they're by themselves in a solo church. That's retiring well. He has downshifted. He hasn't disengaged. Fulfilling his ministry all the way to the end. So friends, what does it mean to be a faithful pastor all the way to the end? Be calm in the midst of chaos. Remember, God is under control. Being a faithful pastor means you endure suffering and you expect it. It's part of the job description. Being a faithful pastor means you evangelize the lost. You don't just have a heart for the church, but you have a heart for people who are not yet in the church. And a faithful pastor fulfills his ministry, which means they don't disengage from serving others. They just downshift and serve in a different way. Now, folks, this is not just true for pastors. But shouldn't all these things be true for every one of us? May that be your challenge this week. Heavenly Father, may we be men and women who, like faithful Pastor Timothy, may we be faithful all the way to the end of our life. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.